I used to run about five miles every morning. And in 80, 1985, I had an accident that damaged one leg so badly. I couldn't run anymore. So I started walking. And I would get up in the morning and walk every morning, sometimes as early as 4 o'clock. And on that day, 15 years ago, I was walking. My walk was nearly over. And I would always have a headset on, listening to scripture. And then toward the end of my walk, I'd turn on some news to find out what's going on in the world. And the first thing I heard was an airplane had hit one of the towers. And uh, uh, at first, Josh, it was assumed that it was a small plane. And um, uh, as it developed a little more, I realized there was more to this. So I ran home and I went to uh, my TV set and I turned on the TV set and and I was glued to the TV to watch all of this happen. And um, I was sitting in my chair and uh, at a point in time, the first tower fell. And I remember coming out of my chair and landing on my knees. I couldn't believe what was happening. And uh, then the second tower fell. By this time, I knew my secretary was in the office. I called her and said, I'm not coming in. If you need me, I'm right here in front of my TV set. And I stayed there until the coverage uh, closed down for the day. And, and I watched all of that. And this morning, just this morning, I got up and I turned it on. And the festivities were beginning and then they started calling the names one at a time. And about an hour later, they were only through the G's. And uh, I remember this morning, uh, the, the, the camera would pan over the crowd and there would be people weeping. And uh, uh, I thought to myself, all of those people in one place and there is an atmosphere of death every place. And then I thought, isn't it great that I get to go to a place this morning where there's an atmosphere of life and uh, that we can thank God today that we have eternal life because of his grace. And um, one of those men this morning said he was remembering his father who who loved his Lord and loved his church. And I thought that is really wonderful to hear that um, uh, I, I think that everything that is going on today is geared toward our remembering a very bad day in our life. And yet at the same time, we can remember that we have eternal life because of what Jesus gave to us. Nothing is certain in this life, is it? There are no certainties. There are no guarantees. But it's good to know that you and I can walk with God. And uh, we can have a relationship with him. And no matter what life brings to us, uh, our eternity is set in concrete. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your grace. A few weeks ago, we said we suffer by grace 
We do everything by grace. You've redeemed us by your grace. Uh, We stand, Father, in your presence today because of your grace. And we thank you, Father, that you allow us to possess this eternal life when there is so much death around us. And while there will come a day when we will participate in that death, we know we have life ahead of us. So thank you, Father, for encouragement in the light of so much discouragement. Thank you, Father, that we can look to you, that there is peace and joy and love because of what Jesus has done for us. So now as we turn our thinking, Father, to the words of the Apostle Paul, we pray that you will continue to grow us a little more, and we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your outline out now. Uh, We are going to come to a subject today that Paul is going to give us some instruction in. And, And what I would like to consider this morning is that you consider looking at the forest and you consider looking at the trees. Uh, it's, it's good sometimes to look at the trees, but sometimes we get so buried in the trees that we forget what the forest looks like or vice versa. Today we want to do a little of both of those and you'll see why that works that way as we go through. Paul is going to talk more about the flesh today. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, I told you, watch that word, sarks, flesh. Paul is going to use it four times in our text this morning. And uh, the flesh is something that we all struggle with. The old nature, the new nature. The Apostle Paul struggled with it. We struggle with it. It is a common experience to every New Testament believer. And it is a conflict a war that will go to the death. We, we won't get out of it until God calls us home. And uh, there can be no cessation of hostilities between the old and new natures. Um, a truce is out of the question, and appeasement policies are futile. This concept of the flesh within us is a thing that The Apostle Paul is going to tell us we struggle with. It is in opposition to everything we stand for from a Christian point of view. In his book, uh, The Adversary, uh, Mark uh, uh, Bubeck says this. He says, the flesh is a built-in law of failure. He's talking to believers. It's a built-in law of failure, making it impossible for the natural man to please and serve God. It is a compulsive inner force inherited by man's fall, which expresses itself in general and specific rebellion against God and his righteousness. The flesh can never be reformed or improved. Understand this. The flesh can never be reformed Or improved. Nothing you do is going to make this old nature better in you. 
The only hope for escape from the law of the flesh is its total execution and replacement by a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is going to deal with the old nature and the new nature today. And he's going to get very specific about what the old nature looks like. That's going to be down in the trees. But he's going to get very specific as to how we get uh, victory over the old nature. And that's going to be looking at the forest. So let's take a look at our outline. Point number one, the opposition of the flesh to the spirit. And follow along in the text as I as I go. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So there is a war going on. The flesh is set against the spirit. The spirit is set against the flesh. And you have, as a New Testament believer, you have both of these living inside of you. Then he goes on to say, For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, There are some things I want to do that I don't do. There are some things that I don't want to do that somehow I do them anyway. So I don't have any control over myself at times because there is this power in me that moves me in one way or another. And so he goes on to say, uh, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Uh, this uh, concept of the flesh, uh, John Stott calls an irreconcilable antagonism. So there is this irreconcilable antagonism within us between the spirit and the flesh or the old nature, the new nature, whatever you want to call it. See, with the, and, and notice the word flesh. He uses it three, three times in these verses. He's going to use it in the next verse. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that that word flesh can apply to this stuff that is over our bones and muscles. But the way Paul uses it is he uses it as a moral influence in our lives. He uses it as a negative moral influence, a drive within us to do the wrong things. And uh, uh, the fact is, he uses it metaphorically that way, except maybe in one place where he uses it. Otherwise, it's used metaphorically as being something bad that lives within us. And uh, with the flesh and the spirit housed in the same body, the conflict is fierce, relentless, predictable, hitting us with discouraging regularity. Not one of us today is going to get through the day today without having a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Somewhere along the way today, we're going to have this conflict that goes on within us. Uh, remember Isaac and Ishmael. They had this conflict, and the conflict went on and on and on, and still goes on today. But there is a solution. 
And this becomes where you look at the forest. When you talk about the solution to dealing with this problem, that's when you're you're up at 35,000 feet and you're looking down and you're looking at the forest, you're going to see the solution. The solution is not to fight the flesh. The solution is to surrender to the Spirit. And uh, I know I know you could say, I'm going to fight the flesh. You can look at a thing in your life and say, I'm never going to do that again. And lo and behold, you end up doing it again. Uh, you can make lists of things that you're never going to do again. But the result is you end up doing them somewhere along the way. So the answer is not to fight the flesh. We have nothing within us. We have no equipment within us to fight the flesh. The only thing we can do is surrender to the Spirit. And Paul uses two statements in this passage. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. See that? Walk by the Spirit. At the end of the passage, he says, and if you are led by the Spirit. So walking and being led by the Spirit is the solution to dealing with the flesh. And that becomes our uh, overlook of the whole forest. Uh, if you are looking for a solution today, and let me say, the solution can be general because there are some things in the Scripture that tell us what we can do to walk by the Spirit. It might be uh, reading my Bible more. It might be spending more time in prayer. It might be interacting with God's people more. It might be having somebody in my life who can come along and say, hey, you're screwing up here. You need to straighten that out. Uh, there may be any number of things. But not only is there stuff in the Bible to teach us how to yield to the Spirit, but it is also an individual thing. See, the way you might yield to the Spirit may be different from the way I yield to the Spirit. And the reason is the drive of the flesh in you is different than the drive in the flesh in me. Uh, the sins that I commit are different from the sins that you might commit. And the way the flesh moves us is different and individual. Let's take a look at point two. And this is where we get down in the trees. The description of the deeds of the flesh. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Evident means everybody can see it. It's, it's something that everybody can see. And here's what they are. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that. Don't you love it? Paul gives you a list like that and says, now, don't, now understand, this is not the complete list. Now, there's a lot of other, see, that's where it becomes very individual, isn't it? Uh, you say, oh, I sin, but it's not on this list. But it's things like that. And so, so Paul is saying, this is not an exhaustive list. He's simply saying, this is a representative list. So what he does here is he gives us a whole bunch of sins, 15 of them to be exact. 
And uh, he divides them into three different categories. The first one is how it impacts me as an individual. The second one is how it impacts God, what my relationship toward God is. And the third one is what my relationship toward other people is. And so let's take a look at the first one. Sensual satisfaction towards self. The first one he uses is immorality in the New American Standard Version. Now, I call that fornication. Uh, it's an illicit sexual relationship between a person who is unmarried and another person. The person who is unmarried commits fornication. Let me explain this word to you. The word is the Greek word pornea. It's the word we get our English word pornographic from. And uh, it's an interesting word because it has two aspects to it. The first one is a technical use of the word. The technical use of the word is always fornication. It is uh, always translated fornication in the King James Bible. Uh, there is then a non-technical use of the word or a more general use where it can mean immorality in general. Even when it's used in immorality in general, it usually applies sexually in some way. And so the New American calls it immorality. It calls it unchastity. And uh, But the word in its technical sense means fornication. How do you know which is which? Well, generally the way you know is by the context. And if the word is used... In a list of other sexual sins, you generally think he's using it in the technical sense in that list. Uh, you see that in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for example, where he gives a long list of virtually every kind of sexual sin. And pornea is used there, so it's fornication. And uh, there are other sexual sins used here. The second one is immorality, I'm sorry, impurity, which is a filthiness of heart. It is a filthiness of the mind. It is that which makes a person defiled. This is the kind of guy, when he uses the word impurity, this is the kind of guy that sees something dirty in everything. You ever been around somebody you don't like to be around because their, their mind is always in the gutter? Uh, well, that's this kind of guy. His mind is always in the gutter. He can't look at a woman without making some con comment about something. And uh, I just don't like to be around people like that. Then the third word that he uses is sensuality. And this is a guy who has a wanton appetite for something sexual. This is a guy who knows no shame. He is a guy, this word, by the way, uh, is translated sometimes debauchery. It is a word which means that this is a guy who is ready any time for any kind of sexual pleasure. This is a guy who knows no restraint. He is, uh, he is not, uh, uh, he doesn't care what other people think. He's gone to the extent that he really doesn't care what other people think. So he gives us these three words, immorality, impurity, and sensuality, to say, I offend myself 
when I do these things. These things tear me apart from a spiritual point of view. Then he goes to the spiritual idolatry, and this is toward God. The first word that he uses is idolatry. Uh, the Greek word is idolatria. Idolatria, and we all know that idolatry means to worship another god. What the word actually means is, and whenever you get a word that's transliterated, idolatria is transliterated in the English, so you really don't get a, a, a translation. What the word really means is that you worship something that is made by hands, by human hands. And uh, the result is, is that this doesn't have to be an image of a god. This could be my car or my motorcycle or um, some other thing. That And sometimes we get so tied into the material things that we end up worshiping them more than we worship God. And then the second one relating to God is sorcery. It means witchcraft. It is referred to as magicians. It is something that was uh, talked against and, and uh, forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen to what the Greek word is. The Greek word is pharmakia. Pharmakia. We get our English word pharmacy from that word. It means drugs. It means drugs. And um, it's, it's hard to believe that people who are addicted to drugs are actually harming their relationship with God more than they are harming any other relationship. Uh, and uh, uh, the magicians in Paul's day would have used drugs to put themselves in certain trances. They would have used drugs to get the people to believe some of the stuff that they were doing. And could Paul have possibly imagined uh, what he was going to uh, say when he used the word pharmakia? Could he have imagined uh, that this problem of drugs would have been one of the biggest problems on the planet in our day and age? Then there are the social belligerents, and this is toward others. And I'm going to fly a little fast. Okay, so follow me. First of all, he uses the word enmities, the attitude of the mind that defies and challenges others. This is a guy who wants, and by the way, there's going to be some overlap in these words. This is a guy who wants to argue about everything. He wants to He's going to take the devil's advocate every time. And then there is strife, rivalry through contentious quarrelings, contentions, quarrelings, and wrangling. This is always for self-seeking and uh, self-ambition. This is the guy who says, I'm, I'm going to argue about this because I want to come out on top and look good. That's why he's going to argue. Um, uh, you see a lot of this in the church. Uh, and then there is jealousy, the desire to have what somebody else has. He uses the word zelos, 
which is the Greek word we get our English word zealous from. And uh, this is a word which uh, he is implying that I just want to be better than the guy next door. This is the keeping up with the Joneses. This is to buy a better car than the guy next door. This is to buy a, a, a better anything so that I look better than the other guy. Outbursts of anger. Uh, exploding anger that flames out and dies after a little bit. This is the guy, the, the Greek word is thumos. It has to do with temperature. And uh, this is the guy who you're not sure you want to tell him what's on your mind because you're afraid of what his reaction would be. See, I want to be, I want to be a guy who's totally predictable. I don't want anybody to say, I don't want to tell Rich this because I'm afraid of how he'll react. See, uh, wives and husbands go through this. Uh, and so that's what this word means. Disputes, self-seeking, uh, dissensions, a group that flies apart. When I was a boy, we had a round merry-go-round. And we would get a dozen kids on that merry-go-round. And some of us would stand on the side and push it and push it. And pretty soon they'd start flying off. <laughs> That's what this word means. See, it means people that are starting to fly off. And then factions creating parties or sects. The word that he uses for factions is uh, heresis, from which we get our English word heresies. Uh, it means to, uh, a heresy, it means literally to choose. You choose this political position. You choose that political position. You choose this candidate, that candidate, you, this theology, that theology, this church, that church. There is the idea of choosing up sides, uh, um, going with people who have a common belief. And here's the interesting thing. People who have different beliefs don't seem to be able to get along together, do they? I mean, look at our political system right now. When have you been around when you have heard such garbage come out of the politicians' mouths. Uh, I think that this is a problem in the church. You know why? I think we ought to be able to disagree on some things and still love each other anyway. We should be able to disagree on some things and still be committed to each other and love each other. You know what? That's why the churches in Corvallis do so well together is because the leadership got together, the pastors got together, and they said, yeah, here's some things we don't agree on, but let's concentrate on what we agree on, and let's love each other anyway. And then there is the envying. And this is a different word than early. Uh, it is wanting to take things away from another person, but it's because not because I want to be better than he is. It's not jealousy. It's because I begrudge him having them. It's because there is an embittered heart in me. It's because I, I uh, 
don't particularly want it for myself, but I don't want him to have it either. That's what that word means. And then there is drunkenness. The Greek word that he uses is methe. Uh, uh, you know, we get our word meth from that, methamphetamine. Uh, it, is, uh, it is that which turns a man into a beast. It's that which puts him out of his mind, literally. And then carousing, uh, unrestrained uh, revelry, rioting, uncontrolled, becoming dangerous, and taking everything as a license and doing things you otherwise wouldn't do. So what's the implication of all of this? Look at what Paul says. Of which I forewarn, the word that he uses for forewarn is pro or pro before uh, lego, to say, to speak. I spoke before. I forewarned you about these things, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice, circle the word practice, such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that is a strong statement. The word practice is the Greek word proso. It is the word that A.T. Robertson, who perhaps was the greatest Greek scholar of a previous generation and and maybe the present generation as well. Uh, he calls this word the verb of habitual practice. So that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about falling into sin one day and then getting it forgiven and moving on. He's talking about habitual practice of these things. And that, if there is habitual practice, Paul says, is proof that one is not part of the kingdom of God. So Paul is not talking about an act of sin, but a habit of sin. Uh, habitual practice suggests that there is no spiritual life in this person. That's what he's saying. To live in sin as a settled choice, as a principle of life, is a far more serious matter than to fall into sin through weakness and uh, carelessness. Paul cares much about the habitual practice of people. And the Bible bases its estimate on a person's character, not upon his infrequent, uh, out-of-the-ordinary actions, but upon his habitual actions and his normal practice in life. But the beauty of it is, is that we can escape all of that by surrendering to the Spirit. By surrendering to the Spirit. If you have to go 35,000 feet and look down on this passage, make sure that you see that the solution is not to fight the flesh, but to surrender to the Spirit. You know, in... Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10:13, the Apostle Paul says, There is no temptation taken you, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation 
provide a way of escape. And what is that way of escape? It's surrender to the Spirit of God. It's surrendering, you know, and if you're like me, you have to do that by the minute. There are times when I have to do that by the minute, by the second. I can't do it by the day. It has to be more frequent than that. And this surrendering to the Spirit. So as you go into communion in just a moment, uh, think about this. How are you surrendering to the Spirit? Is there a Is there a sin that's causing you special trouble? Is there something you'd like to get rid of? How can you surrender to the Spirit? Is God saying to you, I need need more of your time in the Word. I need more of your time in prayer. I need more of your time with the people of God. I uh, I need you to be closer to me. How is that going to work in your life? And I know that it may be different with you than it is with me. In just a moment, you're going to sing Christ alone. There is, a, there is a line in there I want you to look for. Sin's curse lost its grip on me. Sin's curse lost its grip on me. You could say the flesh lost its grip on me. You could say the old nature lost its grip on me because Jesus died and rose from the dead and put his spirit inside of me. And I need to be yielding, surrendering to the spirit. There's communion tables, one over there, one back there, one over there, and one up front. There's uh, um, uh, gluten-free back there. And uh, as we sing, we want you to feel free to get up and go to a table Uh, get your communion. You can bring it back to your seat. You can find a corner. You can get on your knees if you like or whatever and just take communion and remembering that our desire is to surrender to the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning that you've given to us a remedy And I know that sometimes for me, even that remedy is not easy. We thank you, Father, that you've enabled us to have a relationship with you. And when we live in a world that is so dominated by death, we can enjoy the fact that we have life in us. And that life is your spirit That life is the very trinity itself. And Father, this morning, as we come to you, celebrating the death, the broken body, the shed blood of your Son, allow us, Father, to be reminded how we can surrender just a little bit more. Thank you today, Lord Jesus, for coming, for giving this enormous sacrifice your body your blood so that we can be redeemed we ask you father to apply this to us today and every day so that we are reminded of what you have accomplished for us
We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.